Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Another mass shooting targeting the LGBT community. At the end of the day, you're out having a drink with your friends. You're letting your guard down. That's your safe space. You're not supposed to worry about those things. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann. Maureen is off today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. An employee in the public defender's office fired under questionable circumstances. I believe that if I did everything I could for my clients, if I put everything into the job, it would be the time where my work would matter and who I am wouldn't be the determining factor. And the World Cup kicks off in Qatar. And an update from the UC strike picket line. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Five people are dead and 25 are injured after a shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs late Saturday night. Other media have reported that the alleged shooter is the grandson of Republican Santee Assemblymember Randy Vopel. But KPBS has not been able to independently confirm this connection. And while authorities have not determined the exact motive of the attack, the shooting appears to be another act of violence directed at the LGBTQ community. I'm joined now by Fernando Lopez, Executive Director of San Diego Pride. Fernando, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, here we are again, Fernando. It was just a few months ago I spoke with you on this program about a militant group threatening and harassing people at an LGBTQ pride event in Idaho. This latest attack happened at what was supposed to be a safe space. How did we get here? None of us are surprised, I think, is the very first reaction. We have seen over the last several years our LGBT community increasingly being under threat, driven by anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans 
political rhetoric. And in particular, our family friendly events have been targeted, our drag events have been targeted. And even when you and I spoke last, there were issues happening like this all across the country in Georgia and California and Idaho, Texas, Indiana, Florida. And of course, we just saw a few weeks ago, one of our family friendly youth events, LGBT youth events, Boobash, was targeted by these same sorts of groups. And so it's not surprising to our community, the rise in violence and hate speech it has dire consequences, as we've obviously seen. So many people enjoy socializing at local gay bars. What do you say to them after an attack like this? Uh, LGBT bars uh, have been a safe space and a sanctuary for our community for so long. And so the fear and the violation that we all feel is so palpable and and hurtful. And it, it just feels like an absolute violation. And so to my community, I feel you, I understand, but we're going to get through this. We can't let fear and hate win. And, you know, we're just going to keep showing up and showing up and staying in this fight. And we're going to fight for those inclusive space, safe spaces. But it's not about necessarily us continuing to confront fear head on. It's also about the work of our allies, that it's time that our allies step up to the forefront and stop this hateful, divisive political rhetoric that obviously has dire consequences. I think, you know, we see corporations continuing to invest in anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans legislators. And it's time for those corporations to be held accountable. Media outlets who continue to uplift the voices of extreme right-wing individuals who and organizations who are the same folks who are pushing these anti-abortion bans, who are pushing anti-immigrant sentiment and xenophobia, the same folks who are fighting against uh, critical race theory and just trying to teach about the history of our country. There is so much on the line and our fight is the same. And so if we're going to continue to have these safe spaces, if women are going to be able to continue to be able to uh, have safe uh, access to abortion, if we're going to be able to maintain a functioning multi-ethnic democracy, there is so much more work that we need to do together to confront this. It's so much bigger than just one issue. Our listeners should know that Sunday was Trans Remembrance Day. Tell us about that. What is the significance of the event? Trans Day of Remembrance is a moment to honor uh, and remember the all too frequently ignored members of our community or our trans community. The folks who are most at risk of hate and violence and death in the LGBT community is our trans community. And at the intersection of the most vulnerable is our Black trans women who are killed at disproportionate rates. And so Day of Remembrance is an opportunity for us to honor their names, their lives, their legacy, and to recommit ourselves to the work and the road ahead to make sure that we're ending this type of hate and violence. And so for this to happen in the eve of that and the wake, and just it, it was just so additionally painful to have that occur. And it's also important to know that this is also happening at a year when we've had hundreds of pieces of anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans pieces of legislation entered into legislative bodies all across the country. Every single year, 2020, 2021, and 2022 has set new records for anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation. And, and that has real harm. It, it impacts the way we talk about our uh, each other at our classrooms and our churches and our dinner tables. And the way that this anti-LGBTQ hate has escalated has obviously led to record numbers of year, record numbers of trans individuals being killed every single year in 2020 and 2021. 
How will you personally protect yourself when you go out in public areas and events? I do my best, like any of us, to stay safe, to stay vigilant. I'm still going to go out. I'm still going to celebrate. I'm still going to support our LGBTQ small businesses here in the heart of Hillcrest. I'm not going to live in fear, but I I know that everyone's just that much more on edge, a little more uh, cautious as we go out. And, you know, you stick together and you hope for the best. You're vigilant of exits and you try to look for any sort of suspicious behavior. But at the end of the day, you're out having a drink with your friends. You're letting your guard down. That's your safe space. You're not supposed to worry about those things. So Orlando didn't stop us. And this isn't going to stop us either. I know we're going to stick together and continue to go out and support one another. I've been speaking with Fernando Lopez, Executive Director of San Diego Pride. Fernando, thank you. Thank you so much. Allegations regarding a San Diego County public defender supervisor's use of racist terminology are scheduled to be aired in Superior Court soon. KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma has details. In August 2020, Andre Bollinger, a black Latino lawyer, spoke during a Zoom meeting at the Public Defender Association of San Diego County. He told board members they were alienating attorneys of color. Board member and senior public defender supervisor Sherry Stone allegedly responded by calling Bollinger lazy. Colleagues say Bollinger is a well-respected and talented trial attorney, but Stone reportedly continued to attack him. She allegedly said, how dare he try to lynch her or the PDA board given his low acumen and poor performances. The shilling. There's a reason why hate speech is outlawed, and that's because it has a chilling impact. It prevents others from exercising that right to speech. And this had exactly that impact. Former Deputy Public Defender Zach Davina was in that meeting. His co-workers were outraged over Stone's alleged comments. They came to Davina because he is a member of the union's Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee. I'm a white guy. I don't have the history of lynching like other folks, people of color do. And so the first thing I did was listen. And then he says he and fellow DEI committee members recommended that Stone receive diversity training. About how that was an act of aggression and also that her role as a supervisor should be reconsidered, never asking her to lose her job. Davina believes his recommendation ultimately cost him his job. About a month later, Davina says Stone sat on his tenure review panel and told him, I want you to know that slights against co-workers will come back to bite you. And how did you interpret that? Exactly how she meant it. Davina believes he also ran afoul of management months earlier when he came out as gay to an LGBTQ panel. In doing so, he said the public defender office had not always been so welcoming to people like him. He says the backlash was immediate. I had supervisors reach out directly and express their concern about me bringing up that statement and sort of critiquing the office in that sense. Still, Davina says he had only received stellar performance reviews, so he expected more of the same in October 2020 when he went before the tenure review panel. He was wrong. Almost, I would say, the second or maybe third question after how are you was, you're pretty, sorry, um, you're pretty animated and flamboyant. Don't you think that hurts your clients? 
which I don't know how to describe <laughs> how that felt. But Davina says he knew what it meant. You are too much. You are too gay. You are too different. He was crushed. I thought, I believed that if I did everything I could for my clients, if I put everything into the job, it would be the time where my work would matter and who I am wouldn't be the determining factor. Davina says supervisors then approached him in November 2020 with an ultimatum, quit or be fired. He says they told him he was not a good fit for the office's culture. Davina is suing the county for wrongful termination. Former Deputy Public Defender Michelle Reynoso has filed a similar lawsuit. She declined to speak to KPBS. KPBS reached out to Stone, Public Defender Randy Mize, and San Diego County Council for comment. The county says it looks forward to bringing these cases to a jury to hear the facts. Davina's trial is scheduled to start next month. Reynoso's is in February. Lawyer Christopher Ludmer represents both attorneys. He says the allegations in their cases don't align with the values of the public defender office. The fact that the type of discrimination and retaliation that the public defender's office carried out against Zach was done by lawyers makes this case even worse. KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma reported this story, and she joins us now. Amitha, welcome. Oh, it's good to be with you, Jade. You know, it seems like the foundation of Zach Davina's lawsuit and that of former Deputy Public Defender Michelle Reynoso is this incident where a public defender supervisor named Sherry Stone used the word lynched. That's right, Jade. Um, There was a meeting of the Public Defender Association back in August of 2020. And the PDA, as it's known, is actually the Deputy Public Defenders Union. And at this meeting, there is a Black Latino lawyer by the name of Andre Bollinger, who got up to address the board of the PDA. Sherry Stone sat on the board. And Bollinger said, told the board, that it was alienating lawyers of color who were in the office. Stone allegedly responded to his comments by calling him lazy. And she then went on to use the word lynch. She basically asked how dare he try to lynch her or the PDA board, given his low acumen and poor performances. To hear Davina tell it, The entire meeting, which again was on Zoom, went silent. And then he and Reynoso and a whole bunch of other deputy public defenders complained about this. And there was a committee meeting, there was a subcommittee meeting of the union, and its recommendation was that Stone receive training because of those comments, and that she be removed as a supervisor. Then, weeks later, both Davina and Reynoso learn that Stone is actually sitting on their tenure review panel. I mean, it seems of interest that Sherry Stone would then sit on the tenure review panel for these two lawyers. Well, that's just it. That same supervisor, Stone, whose comments they had reported to management is then allowed to sit on their tenure review panels and make recommendations about their continued employment. 
And while on that panel, Davina says that Stone, who knew about those complaints before she went into those two tenure review panels, said to him, slights against coworkers will come back to you. So in the case of Reynoso, again, she wouldn't speak with me, but she says in her lawsuit that that Stone harshly interrogated her about her social justice views and asked her to justify them. And then as you heard in the story, Davina talks about how he was incessantly questioned about his sexual orientation and gender expression. Um, And I should also add that both of these two people, former deputy public defenders, say that they had received excellent performance reviews while in the public defender office. In in the story we just heard, uh, it really focuses on the actions of board member and senior public defender supervisor Sherry Stone, which points to a bigger problem. I mean, can you describe what you heard about the cultural environment at the public defender's office? I can describe it from Davina's perspective. He says in his lawsuit that the office culture was disdainful toward gay people. He said that the public defender office had not always been very welcoming to people like him. And he said that publicly when he came out before an LGBTQ panel in July of 2020. And he said After that happened, he started hearing negative comments from others in the office about his pierced ears, his hair, his nail polish. And then in his lawsuit, he alleges that the pressure became so great that at one point he told his supervisor, you know, I've cut my hair. I took off my nail polish, like you said. And he says that he did this only because he feared and hoped to appease the public defender's office. He was trying to keep his job and continue while continuing to represent a community that he says he cared deeply about. How does San Diego County's discrimination policy protect LGBTQ employees and employees of color? Well, I interviewed the lawyer for both Reynoso and Davina, and he said that he was appalled to learn that the county's own equal opportunity policy doesn't specifically include gender expression, even though protection exists in the California statute. And he said many of the county's anti-discrimination, anti-retaliation policies, both of which are being alleged in both of these lawsuits, are so antiquated that they don't even include sexual orientation. And he basically asked the question, you know, what message does this send if the county doesn't even care enough to adjust, to conform its own policies to the law and say that, look, discrimination against these protected classes is illegal? What was the county's response to your questions about this story? Well, I reached out to Sherry Stone, uh, San Diego County Public Defender Randy Mize. I reached out to County Council. I was basically seeking comment on these two lawsuits. I was told by the county that, you know, the office doesn't discuss pending litigation, especially on the eve of trial. However, they did issue a statement. They said that, that the county looks forward to bringing these cases to a jury to hear the facts. So 
it, it does appear that these cases are going to trial. Uh, I believe Davina's trial starts early next month and Reynosa's trial is scheduled for February. Hmm. I have been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thank you. Thank you, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. Yesterday, the FIFA World Cup kicked off in Qatar with Ecuador beating the host country 2-0. More games are being played today, including the U.S., whose first match is now underway. But so far, issues off the field have often overshadowed the tournament. Controversy has seemed to follow this World Cup since Qatar was announced as the host country, from accusations of corruption to the host nation's treatment of the LGBT community, as well as its harsh treatment of migrant workers. All these stories have made it hard for many fans to focus on the games being played. Joining us now from Qatar is ESPN soccer writer Cesar Hernandez. Welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me on the show. So you've been in Qatar for about a week now. Paint a picture for us. What is the scene like there? People have asked me what it feels like. And I guess if we're, if we're telling San Diego to how it feels like, it kind of feels like uh, when you walk around the gas lamp quarter during daytime right before Comic-Con. <laughs> you know, that's what it kind of feels like where it feels like people are scrambling to set up fan app activations. People are scrambling to set up activities and restaurants and shops. And it almost feels like there's actually some sort of symbolism there for the country that seems to have built things at lightning speed in recent years, perhaps even too fast. You know, this is a fairly poor country until the discovery of oil and gas in the 20th century made them into an incredibly wealthy nation that they are now. So before fans started showing up, it felt somewhat odd to be wandering around these fancy buildings and stores and beaches that felt quite empty, almost dystopian, to be honest. And also, you don't really interact with many Qataris uh, out here. Mostly, it's the, the massive population of migrant workers who do everything and anything across the city and, uh, and keep it going. So a little bizarre, but as fans have started to pile in, it's, you, you get a, a little bit more of a sense uh, that the World Cup has, is fully underway. Can you put into perspective how big of an event the World Cup is? I mean, from a, a sporting sense and even a, you know, a cultural sense, there really isn't anything bigger on the planet. It really transcends so much. And it does feel like the world does stop to watch it all unfold. Let's take the Super Bowl, for example. I mean, you have examples of over 100 million people watching those games, which is probably closer to 150 million new count global audiences as well. The last World Cup final um, in 2018... That final was watched by 1.1 billion people, and that tournament averaged 191 million viewers per match. So when people ask me about the World Cup and they ask me to compare it to, let's say, the Super Bowl, what I like to say sometimes is that the World Cup is basically 64 Super Bowls all packed into a matter of weeks. Hmm. How is this World Cup different from past ones? The, The elephant in the room is Qatar itself. You know, this is a World Cup played where homosexuality is illegal, where there's criticism, you know, the lack of women's rights. Uh, of course, you know, the issue, which the prominent issue of you know, migrant workers being 
exploited out here, you know, with some reports saying that thousands have died building stadiums. And the size of Qatar is interesting as well. It's by far the the smallest country that has been given a World Cup. I mean, the country is actually just only slightly bigger than San Diego County. <laughs> and, and most of the tournament, it's centered in just the city of Doha. So the fact that, that they're throwing this tournament in such a tiny, tiny space is, is very, very bizarre. The fact that they've changed you know, the, the usual summer date to the winter to accommodate for the pretty brutal heat out here, which you still feel in November. I'm, I will say that temperatures have dropped down to the low 70s at night. But during the day, even in, in November, you know, it, it can definitely hit the 90s. So it definitely feels a little odd. And there are fans who feel a little, I don't know, just a little confused about supporting this tournament. You know, as we speak, the U.S. team is playing its first match against Wales. Tell us about this American team. Yeah, so this U.S. men's national team side, you know, it's, it's, it's one that is full of youthful players. It's one that's promising. You know, they have an average age of 24 within their roster. So they're the second youngest squad of the World Cup. And after being unable to qualify for the previous World Cup, which was seen as a massive, massive failure for U.S. soccer, there is almost a, I'll, I'll call it a reset of sorts with more trust um, being put into this younger generation. Over half the rosters, 25 or under. And I think the big question is if a lot of these players, you know, some of them, you know, you, you could even say kids, you know, <laughs> they, they seem that young, you know, you know, you're wondering if they're ready to make this huge leap in their careers, you know, on the world stage, or if at the very least, they'll show glimmers of hope that they'll be reaching their peak and they'll be truly thriving when the US, Mexico, and Canada host the next World Cup in 2026. And of course, there's a local connection too. Um, you know, keep an eye on San Diego's uh, 24-year-old midfielder, Luca De La Torre. He's currently recovering from an injury. I can't imagine he'll be getting many starts, but I, I imagine at the very least he'll be getting some minutes uh, either today or later in the group stage for the United States. And our neighbors to the south, the team known as El Tri, are also in Qatar. Mexico plays its first match tomorrow. What can you tell us about the Mexican team? Yes, El Tri. So it's almost in the exact opposite manner of the United States, to be honest. It's, Mexico is, a, is an aging squad. There isn't a single player under the age of 23 in the squad. And a lot of Mexican soccer fans, you know, they, they're feeling a little frustrated with this, with this generation of players, this aging group of players. You know, that, this national team that was once seen as the undisputed giant in North American soccer, but has also had issues with teams like the United States and Canada recently. But Mexico does have history on their side, though. They're incredibly consistent, and they've made it into the group stage, or made it out of the group stage in the last seven World Cups, but have then immediately been knocked out in the, in the round of 16. And also, speaking of uh, local connections, uh, Tijuana's Hector Herrera is with Mexico. He's said to be one of their key players. But also, that said, like many uh, within Mexico's roster, he's now 32 and seems to be slightly past his peak. Hmm. What team do you think has the best chance of coming away with the trophy in the end? Well, unfortunately for um, Mexico fans, more than likely, it's probably going to be Argentina who are in their group. Uh, They're a very well-balanced team. They have an immense amount of talent across their roster. And um, most importantly, they have an informed Lionel Messi, who is arguably the greatest soccer player of all time. You know, he's won anything and everything that he could possibly earn for club or, or country. But the one thing that has eluded him is a World Cup. So 
keeping in mind that he's 35 years old, this could be his last chance. And I, I think more than likely he'll be up for it. And I, I think he'll be getting that World Cup. It's amazing how these matches really do bring the world together and put a focus on things that are happening around the world, too. Cesar Hernandez is a soccer writer with ESPN. Cesar, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks as well. The strike of 48,000 academic workers at the University of California is now entering its second week. That includes picket lines at all 10 UC campuses. There are 7,700 union members on strike at UC San Diego, where the issues include pay raises and better working conditions. Joining me now is Alex Wenzel, who is a PhD student in biomedical informatics at UC San Diego and a member of the newly formed union Student Researchers United. Alex, welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks so much for having me. Alex, let's start with the latest on the picket lines. How are things going today? Absolutely. Things are still going strong. We have pickets at multiple locations across campus, um, and we are uh, continuing to turn out large numbers uh, for each of those groups. Um, and many and, and most most uh, researchers, as well as teaching assistants, are continuing to uh, withhold their labor um, at our campus here at UC San Diego and then also across uh, the entire institution. I was on the picket lines with you last week covering the story. One of the shouts was, shut it down. Have you, in fact, shut down UC San Diego? We have, to a large extent. There, uh, Of course, uh, the, the teaching assistants, uh, a large number of them, have walked off the job. So uh, grades are beginning to back up. Discussion sections are not being taught. And many uh, professors also, in solidarity, are canceling their lectures the lectures that do plague place uh, certainly have had a hard time continuing uh, what with uh, the noise and general disruption that we are able to cause. And uh, we are also causing delays on the research side as well um, as we continue to withhold our essential labor to demonstrate um, the necessity of uh, the university bargaining in good faith um, and coming to a contract that will allow us to be able to live and, and survive in the current economic context um, and be able to carry on both our teaching and research more effectively. Do you have the support of your students? Yes, many of the undergraduates are very supportive. In fact, I've met a number of them um, on the picket line, and uh, they've been incredibly supportive, even though this causes a uh, disruption in their learning environment. As we often say, and as the undergraduates also agree, our living conditions or our working conditions, I should say, are their learning conditions. And a teaching assistant who is struggling to pay rent or is not sure where they're going to live or is not sure if they can afford food is not the most effective teaching assistant that a student can have. Has there been any agreement on any of the issues? Yes, uh, there have been tentative agreements reached on a number of issues. The university has uh, come to the table on uh, some of our issues related to appointment length and appointment security, uh, which is a large deal to us. As I also uh, mentioned a moment ago, uh, Student Researchers, Un Researchers United has now uh, for the first time, been able to get uh, uh, get a um, contract tentative agreement for paid time off, which is not something that we have had the benefit of in the past, as well as workers' compensation, uh, since there have been incidents in the past of students um, being injured in some way in the course of their research, either in the lab or in the field, and then not being able uh, to get any kind of support after that's happened. 
Alex, we assume that someone who has a PhD has really reached the ultimate in a career, and that would mean financially, but that is not necessarily the case. You're right. That is not the case, especially for uh, postdoctoral uh, researchers. Uh, the uh, pay and benefits of working in a lab at the University of California have not really kept pace with the cost of living or uh, what a uh, such a highly qualified and specialized researcher is worth to the university. Um, we note that currently compensation for graduate students, for example, amounts to uh, only 1% of the university's budget, despite the fact that uh, we perform the majority of the research and a large amount of the teaching as well. Uh, we believe that certainly our, our compensation, especially for the postdoctoral researchers who are, as you point out, extraordinarily well qualified and, and highly trained and specialized, is not keeping up with what is appropriate considering the cost of living near both at UC San Diego and then also near most of the other campuses as well. That is that is uh, one of our central arguments uh, in, in what we believe we deserve in a fair contract. How long will you stay on the picket line? Uh, we will stay out until uh, we reach a contract that our members agree on, um, which is likely at this point uh, seems that it will extend through the Thanksgiving holiday and potentially into the week after. Um, the process uh, is that our uh, bargaining units, uh, which are, excuse me, our bargaining teams, which are uh, representing each of the uh, bargaining units uh, in negotiations, will uh, reach a tentative agreement with the university, and uh, we will have a chance to vote on that. And that is likely, uh, seems to be likely to happen after the holiday. Uh, obviously, things can change very quickly. It's impossible to say for sure, and I'm not a member of the bargaining team. But both sides are considering the size of the strike and the number of people on the picket as they make their decisions on how to proceed. And so far, our numbers are strong. Uh, I believe the university likely expected us to last a day or two, but now we are well into the second week. Um, and even with the holiday and, and vacation plans and, and other things uh, going on, we are still maintaining strong picket lines and we are ready to uh, stay out here until we win a fair contract. I've been speaking with Alex Wenzel, who is a Ph.D. student in biomedical informatics at UC San Diego and a member of the newly formed union Student Researchers United. Alex, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. We will say that the University of California, San Diego, did release a statement saying, at this time, we believe that the best path to an agreement is with the aid of a third-party mediator and have proposed to the United Auto Workers enlisting the assistance of a neutral private mediator so that we can achieve a compromise. We continue to encourage the union's participation in pursuing mediation. Another bad report for San Diego's ambulance provider, Falk, is set to see fines after failing to meet response times and staffing goals again. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman has more on changes that could be coming in the new year. I'm sure we all agree this is not where we thought we'd be a year ago. San Diego Fire Rescue Chief Colin Stoll is not seeing the high level of service promised by the city's ambulance provider, Falk. This is not getting any better anytime soon. We're seeing the trends right now in the staffing, and I do not feel like anything is going to be corrected in the very near future if we just wait this out and wait for staffing to improve. It's been just about a year since Falk fully took over San Diego's 911 contract, 
They provide emergency ambulance services throughout the city of San Diego. To get that contract, they promised more paramedics and EMTs, but data from the city shows they haven't once met their monthly staffing goals. This week's update to city council focused on the months of July, August, and September. Falk San Diego's managing director, Jeff Bame, says low staffing levels have continued hurting response times. July, in terms of compliance, was was very good. August became a little worse, and we saw September being uh, one of our worst months of the year uh, next to January. And a lot of that uh, certainly due to staffing, illness, um, injury. Falk has already been fined $1.5 million, and the fire department says more fines are on the way. Falk says there's a nationwide shortage of paramedics and EMTs. Also, they admit recruiting has been a challenge, even after offering sign-on bonuses. This ebb and flow is very obvious. The problem we have here is they are not competitive. Anthony Sorcy is a 25-year paramedic, and he's also president of the union representing Falk employees. He says staffing shortages are forcing overtime, and first responders are burning out. Our members share experiences of helplessness, mental anguish that has resulted in increased numbers of physical injury, illness, PTSD, and serious clinical depression. Sorcy also says lack of staff has ambulances traveling all over the city, pushing up response times and even forcing the fire department to take their own measures. These delays have resulted in critical patients being transported to area hospitals by San Diego fire engines because the fire crews could not longer wait at scene for an ambulance to become available for their calls. City data shows the amount of time that no paramedic ambulances are available has risen since April. Councilmember Raul Campillo was not pleased with the lack of improvement. I really just... uh... I'm disappointed that we seem to be at a position where we can't provide our residents with what was promised to them. It's, it's, a, it's the same song again. Councilmember Marnie Von Wilpert says she doesn't need to hear any more. It seems that we have a pretty serious problem that this contract is, is, is failing. Fire Chief Stoll is preparing for the worst. He commissioned a study to look into what it would take for the city to take over emergency medical services. Those options are set to be presented in January. Whether it's an amendment to the contract or if we have to um, do some kind of bond or takeover of the program or bring another company in to help, we need to do something. Falk officials also maintain that one reason for delays is ambulances are being held too long at hospitals. They're getting some pushback. Scripps health officials say emergency rooms are busy, but data shows most patient drop-offs happen on time. Councilmember Monica Montgomery Stepp says, bottom line, no more excuses. I just don't want to hear that anymore. We need to put solutions on the table, and I'm glad that we're going to be coming back in January. Falk is working with the city and other stakeholders on improvements. Falk officials say they remain committed to San Diego. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, 
Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. With Thanksgiving coming up, our midday film critics wanted to highlight a movie they feel thankful for. So here are KPBS cinema junkie Beth Accomando and Movie Wallace podcaster Yazdi Pithavala singing the praise for Todd Field's Tar. Before we start discussing the film and its many facets, let me just introduce it to listeners who may not be familiar with it. Filmmaker Todd Field wrote Tar specifically for actress Kate Blanchett, and if she had turned down the role, he said he would have shelved the project. Fortunately, Blanchett accepted the role, and she plays an arrogant but breathtakingly talented conductor named Lydia Tarr. The film opens with an extended scene that is nothing more than a sit-down interview between Tarr and Adam Gopnik. So let's hear a little bit of that scene. Time is the thing. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right, time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time really? it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. So this is just two people talking. Now, it's very simple on a certain level, but on another level, this is kind of like a radical challenge to what people expect from a movie. So let's just begin by talking about how effective this opening scene is. It's always show, don't tell. And the director just uses this wonderful device so that by the time that opening scene is done, 10 minutes in, you know so much about the central character. It allows him an opportunity to introduce her to this audience for The New Yorker, but at the same time, he's introducing the character to those who are watching the film. And it allows us to see her in her glory when she's reigning, and you get such a good sense of her as a character. And what's great is you are getting so much information about her. She's talking in these eloquent sentences that are designed to sound spontaneous. But as we watch this play out, we know she has rehearsed this like a hundred times because her assistant is reading the words along with her, lip syncing to it. So there's just so many elements to the visual style and the editing and the scripting that give us so much more information about her than what the surface of the scene tells us. Yeah, she's really commanding the room. She is in control of that conversation. And it does seem like it's spontaneous, but it's not because it's all rehearsed and it's all, again, demonstrating how much confidence and control she has over what she's purviewing, which is this orchestra. 
And she's got it down to the clothes she wears, her gestures. Everything feels carefully rehearsed to appear absolutely natural. (laughs) Yes, yes. There's a cadence to how it all comes off seeming totally superior. She's depicted as this incredibly talented, arrogant person who is willing to crush anyone in her path to get what she wants. So after the screening, a number of people came up to me and said they were they actually resented having had to spend time with a person that they felt was so horrible. But I found her character absolutely riveting. And I'm just wondering how you feel about how she is presented and whether it really matters if she's sympathetic or likable. The major reason why I love it is precisely because this movie has you play this game at every minute of you judging her as the viewer and deciding if she is a bad person, bad morally, bad criminally. I mean, there's no question about it. She's very arrogant. She's totally at the top of her form in terms of her talent. And she's using her status and her privilege to get things done. And the movie asks you, is that necessarily a bad thing? And like you, Beth, I could have watched her for another three hours. This is a long movie, but I found it so riveting because we are used to seeing complicated, flawed male characters, but we so seldom see women characters who are allowed to be all of these things that this movie allows Tar to be. Yeah, I think there's a lot of focus sometimes on presenting women in a positive light because Mm -hmm. there aren't as many representations. But part of what I really want to see is women depicted in this very complex, flawed, vulnerable way where they're not role models, but that's what makes them so interesting. I mean, to me personally, perfect characters or ones that are too good or too nice are kind of boring. Boring. I don't learn (laughs) from them. I learn from the characters from things like Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro, you know, Rupert Pupkin or Travis Bickle or any of these films. Uncut Gems is a recent one. But one of the things I really love about this film is it never tells you what to think. It never really explains anything to you. It presents her life and allows you to make determinations about what we're seeing and what's happening and whether she's guilty of things she's accused of or whether she's committed some of these acts. And I just love a film that doesn't condescend to the audience to say that, no, figure it out yourself. Yeah, like you, Beth, I think this movie is so unrepentantly cerebral. It is presenting things intellectually to you and presenting this character, and it's not going to fill all the gaps for you. And I love that the movie is very masterly in its script, but it's also very masterly in terms of how it's put together, because like you said, you are not given all the information, and you are constantly, again, trying to figure out, link all the pieces together in real time, and kind of make your own judgment. And your judgment's kind of changing as we find out more and more about her, but you never find out everything. And I think that's what makes the movie special because that's how the real world is. You will never know a person completely. You are always exposed to half-truths or limited truths, and we have to make our judgments based on that. Well, I hope this discussion has inspired a few people to go check out this film. It's not often that you get a movie that you can sit and talk about for potentially hours and still not 
even scratch the surface of some of what it's doing. So thank you, Yazdi, for talking about TAR. My pleasure. And we haven't even talked about the great acting or about the (laughs) Me Too aspects. And exactly, I can talk about this for another hour with you. But I hope, I really too hope that people seek out this film. It's something else. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Yazdi Pithbala. You can hear their full discussion of the film TAR on Beth Cinema Junkie podcast Wednesday. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 